Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome to another Trademark Podcast. Uh, I'm coming at you from a balcony overlooking the castle of Alcazar in Toledo in Spain. Alcazar was a site of a famous siege in the Spanish Civil War and became a really important symbol for the Francoist fascist forces because the Franco diverted his apparently his march on Madrid to come and relieve the siege here, the siege of fascist forces inside the castle from Republican forces outside it, leading, of course, to 40 years of Francoist and fascist rule in Spain. I'm here this week with um, Comrade Maeve McDade from Trademark Belfast. We're delivering political education to groups of young trade unionists from about 15 countries from all over Europe. And the theme of the training this week is tackling the far right or how we combat the far right, particularly apt, of course, us coming from Ireland because of the uh, recent scenes on the streets of, well, not just Dublin, but in towns and villages across Ireland. Big surge in anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-refugee sentiment, driven, of course, by a lot of right-wing grifters, um, fascists, National Party, and so on and so forth. And we're here today. I'm just going to move inside because it's too fucking noisy out there. And to talk to comrades and help comrades engage with and discuss how the trade union movement in particular needs to take a much stronger stance on uh, the rise of the right and step up to the plate. And that goes, of course, for the trade union movement at home in Ireland as well. Um, it's not really the wrong thing to say if you, if you were to say that the resurgence of the far right is, is kind of one of the standout features of, of contemporary politics, whether it's the US, Europe, Ireland, but even beyond the imperialist core in places like India and Brazil, um, the rise of the right is really a global phenomenon. Um, and over the last sort of 14 years, particularly since the 2008 global financial crash, I think something an equivalent of 40% of, of global GDP was mobilised to, to bail out the failed financial system. No equivalent mobilisation, of course, took place to bail out workers or communities. And of course, that didn't go unnoticed um, by the right or by workers. But it was largely ignored by the traditional, if you like, social democratic left. And it's led to a kind of anti-politics and an anti-establishment feeling in working class communities in, in lots of places. Now, the right, of course, has utilised that to great effect. We've seen an increase in the far right in parliaments, on the streets, and, of course, the birth of a particularly well-connected and dangerous online, uh, kind of online movement. Um, and I suppose some of the Western ruling class are waking up to the crisis. The question for us and for these young activists we were with this week is to what extent sections of the ruling class are planning on you know, an even more brutal assault, really, on the people, and to what extent they might use a sufficiently powerful fascist or, you know, far-right movement to help sustain that assault. Um, it's important, and we keep repeating it this week, fascism is not a working-class problem. It is a ruling-class project. And this, we're here this week to kind of talk about the characteristics of that project, you know, the, the idea of authoritarian hardening of so-called liberal capitalist democracies, not becoming fascist overnight, but moving to the right, shifting to the right with the banning of protests and anti-trade union laws and, and, and so on. We're here also to point out that the rise of the far right can't be understood outside of historical material context, outside of the prevailing economic system and, and power relations. I mean, even the emergence of capitalism, when you think back, it necessitated the use of, of race, for example, to justify colonialism and slavery. Classical fascism back in the 30s can't be understood without understanding the dynamics that were unleashed 
by you know the late 19th century imperialism, the scramble for Africa, the, the slaughter of the First World War, and of course the, the destruction of the Great Depression that led in part to the rise of fascism in Europe um, in the 1930s. So ideas and social forces we know don't emerge in a vacuum. They're shaped by material conditions, and we're here this week to talk to hopefully convinced as well that you know when we approach the far right and the emergence of the far right with based on our understanding of material conditions it's a lot better vantage point to be than sort of hammering and, and moralizing and just whining about it so what i'm going to do over the next uh, couple of days is talk to a few of the activists here get them to tell us their stories about what they're doing and where the threats are coming from in their own regions and countries hope it gives you some food for thought hope you enjoy it and i'll speak to you soon Hello and welcome back. I'm joined by a good comrade here now, Moise Zirach from Slovenia, from the Slovenian Trade Union. Um, Slovenia is a place very close to my heart, as is all of former Yugoslavia. I spent a lot of time there in the 90s and our family there, as I was telling you about. But Moise, thanks for talking to us today. Just wanted to ask you a question about, um, give us a brief overview, really, of the, the rise of the right in Slovenia. Is there a right? Is it powerful? Is it dangerous? Or are we, are we, are we exaggerating its, its threats at the moment? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that the far right in Slovenia is very dangerous at the moment because they are in the parliament. Uh, they ran the government uh, for the two years throughout the pandemic. Uh, and they have also strong connections to the civil society, neo-Nazi organizations, basically. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe they are dangerous because they're always very close to taking the power. They have that very stable voting uh, base. Mm -hmm. um, so they're always in parliament. I, I don't believe they will get out of the parliament easily. Um, so, yeah, and the, what scares me the most is that people in Slovenia, I don't think, are very aware of that problem because that party, Slovenia, uh, Slovene Democratic Party, they are perceived like an old traditional party in Slovenia. They're not like newly formed right-wing party, like Alternative for Deutschland, for example, because yeah. um, they were oh, they were already active in the independence struggle of Slovenia after the uh, collapse of Yugoslavia. So they're like one of the oldest parties in Slovenia, and they just took that uh, far-right turn in like let's say last couple of decades. Um, and how do, how is their how is their kind of far right how do they characterize themselves or what kind of policies do they have or how would you characterize them as a far right far right conservative traditional rural or more neo nazi uh, no they're actually very conservative considering values uh, they're always uh, talking about we have to em emphasize traditional values in slovenia we're a christian nation that's why muslim migrants are a problem because mm -hmm. their culture is so different from ours and similar uh, like all over all over europe i believe uh, they also believe in the traditional gender roles so okay. The debate on abortion has not been opened yet in Slovenia. It's a constitutional right in Slovenia, right okay. to abortion. So, so far, so good. But they have been some attempts from some uh, other groups outside of the parliament. Um, but yeah, that is like one part that I and other uh, women in Slovenia are very afraid of. They tackling that right as well. Um, so yeah, that is their view. And they are also kind of critical towards the European Union. When they were in power, the Slovenian Democratic Party, they were trying to strengthen the ties with the Visegrad group. Uh, the, our ex-prime minister, he was a very good friend with Viktor Orban. Um, so it was a very scary period back then because uh, a lot of us actually believed if he will have another mandate uh, in government, he might start thinking about uh, not leaving European Union, but... Uh, Moving more toward the Visegrad um, group with Orban and others. So yeah, I um, suppose for the ones in Eastern Europe, it's quite difficult because they border the EU, but they also border Russia as uh -huh. well, and that's a dividing line in terms of, of, of modern politics. I think a friend of ours said the other day that 
Our Bulgarian friend said that you have to be very careful when you look to the east and you look to the west because you might not like Russia, but it is your closest neighbour, mm. so you have to be wary of that also. Mm. Um, what about the left in Slovenia? What about the trade union movement? What's its current status? Yeah, the <laughs> situation with trade unions in Slovenia is not very good at the moment. The membership is falling. Uh, the trade unions themselves are very narrow in their views. They're only like strictly workers' rights, workers' rights, workers' rights. It's very hard to uh, convince them that maybe... Other questions are important for the working class as a collective as well, not just the specific, I don't know how long you can have your lunch break, but maybe if you can access your healthcare system or if the universities are free of charge, that's an important working class question as well. So um, that I think there are a lot of challenges in the trade union movement in Slovenia because there are very um, traditional trade unions, but not in the very, very traditional sense when they were leftists and raising political actions. They focus on industrial rather than political. Yes. This is a false dichotomy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like it's not just, I mean, it's political economy. It's Mm -hmm. not politics and economy, it's exactly. political economy, and I don't think trade unions uh, and the leaders of the trade union movement in Slovenia understand that. Okay, well thanks very much, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thank you for and, talking um, with me. <laughs> I know that we'll see you in Belfast soon. Yes, I hope, I hope, <laughs> I have to come. Welcome back once again to this weird little podcast from Toledo in Spain. I'm joined now by uh, Maeve McDade, sorry, sorry, Dr. Maeve McDade <laughs> of Trademark Derry, who now works for us, she's my co-conspirator this week in Spain, co-facilitator, co-trainer. Uh, working together this week with a group of um, young trade union activists from 15 countries across Europe. Um, and Maeve, what do you think of the week so far? Yeah, I think it's going really well. Um, it's really interesting to see maybe some of the tensions across the different geographies of Europe and particularly some of the um, direct histories of fascism and how people conceptualise or understand uh, their meaning of far-right ideas. Yeah, there's, it's quite clear, isn't it, from our, the, our friends here in Spain that Franco's um, kind of shadow looms large in their in their understanding of fascism. Absolutely, and it's necessarily embedded in, in maybe working class uh, spaces and um, communities uh, in ways that maybe people who hadn't lived under direct fascism would have would have understood it. Yeah, there's a weird kind of north south east west dynamic in Europe amongst trade unions, isn't there? Absolutely. Are we going to drill down into that or is that too Ooh, sensitive? I think it might be a bit sensitive now, but for another podcast. <laughs> well, I'll go there briefly. Is it no my, my experience of of, of uh, trade unions here is when you do go to southern Europe, particularly Italy and Spain, maybe because of their history, well, no, not maybe because of their history of fascism, anti-fascism is a core part of who they are as trade unions. You go into Eastern Europe, it's a different picture. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's come up a few times in the discussion where there's a kind of equivocation between far right and far left, which um, although we don't want to invalidate people's experiences, we have to model for them that the framework of being an anti-fascist is to be left-wing and it's uh, the duty of all trade unionists to take that position. Yeah, we can't be we can't be doing with horseshoe theory bollocks can we really at this stage of the game you know because the threat is coming not from uh far left however you define that whatever that even fucking means the threat's coming from the right absolutely and it's not even a threat you know we, we see manifestations of far-right ideas embedded across governments and and particularly in europe and indeed in britain and, and in ireland and i think something that's necessarily come out of the discussion is people talk about this uh far or extreme right as being an external problem somewhere out there uh, rather than something that's already embedded in lots of like anti-trade union policies, anti-immigration policies, you know, disastrous working conditions. These are all authoritarian, far-right ideals that have become normalised and mainstream um, in the everyday uh, economy and life. 
So I think if we allow this idea that the far right is just the skinheads on the streets and we're losing where the far right are winning, which is in the mainstreaming of, of laws and policies. Absolutely, yeah. People keep referring, and some of the people here this week refer to, oh, what's the danger of UKIP in Britain? I said, well, UKIP's not the threat. It's the British government is the threat. The Tory government is the threat. It's the far right government. And as you said, those far right governments exist in Poland. And you could argue Macron has drifted dramatically to the left in kind of authoritarian hardening, you know. To the right, yes. To the right. Sorry, <laughs> if only did drift to the left. I know. Um, one of the other things that came out this week that was really interesting is the Eurocentric nature of discussion as well. We don't really get into it very much, but there's this idea that because Europe's becoming authoritarian and because the far right's growing in Europe, as if those same European countries haven't been far right for fucking decades in their colonies and their former colonies. Yes, absolutely. And we had a delegate from Slovenia who made a very good intervention today about the silence of the EU on, on Maloney's, you know, she's mm-hmm. clearly far right. She represents far right interest. She's a descendant of Mussolini. And, and there's absolute silence. But if we also look at the makeup of the EU, the majority parties would consider themselves not even centre-right, but to the extreme right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that we have to criticise and challenge. So I understand that within Europe, they have this framework of the European trade union model, but they uh, we have been definitely encouraging some more critical reflection on what that means. What does it mean to be a European and a European worker and at whose expense? I think everybody here is here because they share a belief that states are becoming more racist, anti-immigration, Islamophobia, uh, and indeed even, you know, rollback on women's rights and reproductive rights is something that's, you know, becoming increasingly more common. Um, But I think we need to also be able to call our own house in order. You know, Mm -hmm. we need to be able to be critical of the institutions that allowed for that to happen. Yeah, sometimes when you go to the events, I think, within the European framework, within European trade union framework, criticism of the European Union simply isn't on the table. It's kind of a taboo subject almost. And yet it's central to any of these discussions. Everyone who spoke today and spoke a week keeps railing on about the, the damage that neoliberalism is doing to the communities they come from. And that's, you know, pushing people to the right or it's allowing the right to organize in communities and trade union spaces. And then you ask people, where does that neoliberalism come from? It didn't just arrive out of thin air. It's a product of the economic system, which in Europe is a product of the European treaties. Absolutely. And I think if we look at um, the criminalisation, for example, of even something that should seem very obvious to support, which is humanitarian efforts in Greece, if we even you know consider things like this, these are being driven by the European ideology, the European Union ideology of Europe for Europeans. And I think if we don't have space to criticise that in the internationalist or global framework, then we are in trouble. Um, but I do think that it's you know really meaningful that we have been able to talk and work with delegates this week from across 15 countries, as you said. Um, but we also need to have the opportunity to really break down that where there are opportunities within the European Union and the trade union movement that we also have to be in our communities as well. And that these frameworks don't speak to a lot of ordinary working class people. Yeah, very good. The last point I wanted to raise, of course, is again, criticism of the European framework is that the European framework itself has a deeply racist immigration policy. As you said, not just the criminalisation of providing humanitarian assistance in parts of Europe, but even offshoring, if you like, or exporting the control of our borders to Turkey, you know, by preventing people coming in from North Africa. So it's okay once you're in Europe, we'll treat you, well, maybe not even too decently, but if you're coming in, to Europe, we're not going to allow you in and we're going to let you die in the Mediterranean. I mean, fortress Europe is becoming a real thing. Yeah, I think one of the biggest myths of um, Brexit was that um, Britain was going to be, or it was a necessarily like more progressive state because it was part of the European Union. 
But Britain is an exceptional in its racist immigration policies and the fact that there's almost a whitewashing of European Union complicity in the death of migrants uh, on its shores shows a real kind of, you know, lack of understanding of actually what's driving the European Union and its capital and its it's mm. it's money and it's definitely not taking in people who need help. Yeah, I pity the students, our participants tomorrow when we get at them again because uh, we've got another half day with them tomorrow. No, it's going to be a good conversation. It's going to be a good crack. Uh, our job here all week is precisely to ask difficult questions and raise critical issues so that so that all the elephants in the room are addressed and so that no, no topic is left unaddressed. Yeah, and it's also you know, to share best practice. You know, you've been working in the Irish trade union and labour movement for decades. I've been in Britain for almost two decades. Um, we have a lot of you know anti-fascist experience, ranging from those behind the scenes uh, support and training, as well as you know confronting fascism where it emerges. But a big part of our task and job ahead, and what we would ask all of our listeners to consider, is to stop framing the far right as just thugs on the streets, but as absolutely embedded. And everything that our governments are, are implementing, uh, from you new know, authoritarianism, police powers, police surveillance, this is all part of a, a very far-right agenda yeah. that we can't even call extreme because it's so normalised. Yeah, including at home, the housing crisis in Ireland, which is provoking or giving energy into the growth of the far-right on the streets of Ireland at the moment, is government policy and has been for, for decades. Absolutely. And we don't need, um, as you said, neo-Nazi movements when you've got Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Yeah, and they feed off each other. Um, and something you know that we can clearly see from our research, you know, we'll publish that on the trademark website as well, is just how interlinked the, these kind of different manifestations of the far right are. Right, Maeve, thanks very much. Thanks for that wee chat. Um, I think it's beer o'clock. It's been a long day. <laughs> okay. It's nearly seven o'clock. Um, thanks very much for listening and, we'll, and listening to the next week episode. Cheers. Slow and gefoil. Hello again and welcome back to this uh, trademark podcast coming from Toledo in Spain. I'm joined now by um, Yolanda, Yolanda Gill. Yolanda, you're very welcome. Thank you. Hello. Uh, Yolanda is uh, a nurse from uh, the Union Comisión Obreras, which is the largest union in Spain. Um, she's also president of the ETUC Youth Committee and she's been a great host this week. Uh, she was one of the people who invited us, Trademark Belfast, to come to Toledo here in Spain to work with young activists from across Europe. Um, to talk about and and plan for how we tackle the rise of the right. Um, I'm really pleased you're here with us, Yolanda. Um, for those who don't know, Misiano Tobreras is um, was formed back in the 1960s um, by the Communist Party and other groups in Spain, and um, kind of a clandestine union for many years, of course, working uh, secretly under Franco. Um, and it was one of the unions that called the general strike in 76 to help the transition to democracy. And it's um, now, as I said, the largest union in Spain, uh, and they've been a great host this week to us. One of the things, Yolanda, that struck me actually about uh, the week in Toledo, particularly because we're right next to Alcazar and the history of Alcazar and the Spanish Civil War, was, was how um, much the kind of memory, the legacy, and the shadow of Franco is still very alive in in Spanish politics. Is that is that fair? Is that fair to say that? Of course, it's fair. Yeah, uh, we are still uh, in some parts of the society. There's still this idea of Franco's uh, remembrance. That, uh, to be honest, it it is worrying. Because it doesn't happen in the rest of the of the countries of Europe, but in Spain there's still an ideology that uh, in some people that uh, with Franco's everything was uh, better because there was a lot of job and uh, there was a stability, which obviously for me is like incredible words. But uh, yeah, there's still this um, thinking that uh, any time of the past was better than today. So it's something that is quite quite difficult. 
to understand. Yeah, there's a lot of that amongst the far right, this kind of nostalgia for this kind of yeah. past that never existed. You see it not just in Spain, but one of the things we talked about this week was, would you see that in lots of countries who look back to a past when the world to them seems simpler, but um, it's a very, very strange view of the past. Yeah, there are, absolutely. Um, because that past, of course, was characterised by the absence of freedom and the absence of democracy and and mass immigration as well from Spain. I grew up in a part of London uh, called Pimlico, and ninety percent of my school was Spanish. The other ten percent, oh. the other ten percent was Irish, and everyone was there because they were immigrants from reactionary right wing states. You know, um, I, I was watching a video the other day. It was amazing. There was a group of people. Some I don't know where it was in Spain, but they were standing singing a Falangist song and giving Nazi salutes openly in the streets. It seems to be. Is it something that's growing in Spain? The the rise of the far right. Well, of course, it's something that is is rising, and what it worries me more is that it's rising in the youth, which is uh, understandable because I cannot understand uh, why people, uh, young people, that they didn't leave uh, what uh, it happened in Spain, uh, they support extremely support uh, these uh, past times and these uh, fascist uh, aspects that, uh, of course. Is something that for for me as a young trade unionist is, is something that is not understandable. I mean, it's, it's something that you have to to be able. That's why I think this uh, week in Toledo that we are training for is quite important because we need to be able to stop these um, these thoughts to be able to to contra argument uh, their uh, their ideas. And to be able to say that uh, this is something that we cannot forget because it can be repeated again in, in our country and we don't want that. So it's something that it worries uh, me a lot because it is not happening only in the elderly people. It's happening as well in the youngest uh, generation, which uh, we need to be able to, to stop that. Yeah, it seems that lots of the energy of younger people is going into supporting Vox. I mean, I know that a few years ago we'd never heard of it, it didn't exist, and suddenly Vox has come from nowhere to, you know, being in regional government, to having positions in national parliament, and like 15, 16, 17% in the polls. I mean, where did where did Vox come from and how strong are they, do you think? Yeah, so um, just to put you in a little bit of, of context, um, in, in Spain, uh, we currently have two extreme right-wing parties in the institutional sphere. One of them is Vox, uh, and the other one is uh, ADN Identidad Española, Spanish Identity, which, uh, well, practically no representation. So if we focus on Vox, um, to give you a bit of context, after uh, the elections in 2019, uh, they are having now 52 deputies in, in, the, in the parliament, in the Congress. Uh, making them the third largest political force in, in Spain. This uh, political party was formed in 2013. They began to have influence in the institutions in 2017. In 2018, one year after, they achieved uh, the first good electoral results in some municipalities and regional governments. And then, as I said, in 2019, they have uh, a huge representation in, in the Congress of, of Deputies. Vox uh, is a, a split uh, from the Spanish uh, right-wing uh, party, which is called PP. Of course, uh, Vox is uh, radicalized on the basis of um, ultra-conservatism, uh, Spanish ultra-nationalism, protectionism, <laughs> Euroscepticism, 
monarchism, I mean, anti-immigration, LGTBI, anti-feminism, anti-Islamism, I mean, (laughs) anti-everything. It ticks all the boxes. uh, Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) All that we learned during this training, they fulfill all of them. And obviously anti-immigrant, well, anti-everything. But I think um, in Spain, it's important to differentiate between the far right parties, which uh, at the moment, the most important one is Vox, and at the institutional level, and the far right um, parties on on a regional level, because there's more uh, parties apart from Vox at regional level, but because they are only in some regions where they come because they only present themselves in the elections in those regions that they think they will have uh, enough representation. Sure. So I think we have to differentiate both of them. Okay, one of the things that's really um, fascinating is maybe the wrong word, but when you look at the characteristics of Vox and the kinds of narratives and the kinds of policies, they is the anti-feminism seems to be quite strong in Vox. It seems to be a really misogynistic party. Um, now, obviously, that comes from that kind of ultra-conservative, maybe Catholic background as well, but um, how does that how does that work amongst younger women in Spain that vote for Fox, that support Fox, that are activists in Fox when they're so strongly anti-feminist? Well, to be honest, it's something that I cannot answer because it impressed me a lot as well. I cannot understand how, especially young women, but not only young women in general, mm. they can support this type of um, parties that, um, well, they openly say that they are anti-feminism uh, and in the things that they normally do it is seen that they are against the, the women. So to be honest, I don't know how to answer that because for me, it's something that impressed me a lot. I mean, uh, it's the ideology that they have. Uh, it's like the old, well, the, the old idea of uh, the women, they have to be at home looking after children, not be able to to develop their uh, own careers and all these things. And, and they agree with those uh, ideas, which for me at this time is quite... Um, incredible yeah it is amazing to see because it's you know that the the things they promote go against the actual lived lives of most young women in spain those two things don't sit well together because even people who vote vox they don't live that old traditional lifestyle where they're in the home looking after kids so there's a tension there that maybe you know that maybe we can work with or maybe you can work with you know to to cause a split yeah i think to be honest um the problem is the people, when they don't find a proper answer to a difficult problem, they just look for a simple answer. And these far-right uh, parties, they are giving the answers. Obviously, simple answers that it, it won't work, but th- because they are populist, they keep saying these, uh, these uh, simple answers to big problems. And the, the young people, they are buying these answers. I mean, they are agree with these answers because... What they want is an answer when uh, the, there is an instability in their lives. As you as you know, in Spain, uh, young people are the most vulnerable groups in the society because of the precarious situation that they are living and because of the different crises that they have to live through. Uh, so what they want is something uh, to, to be able to, to live with. And, and unfortunately, uh, they fight right-wing parties they are giving answers of course false answers but Mm -hmm. uh, they they are buying them i mean they they are catching all these young people to their parties and and i saw in in the last elections in in 2019 in november 
when you were going to the electoral uh, bodies to to vote, you saw a uh, very young people with the box um, a credential uh, trying to convince uh, people to vote Vox. So it's something that is happening and, and we need to stop it. Yeah, as you say, that if the left don't come up with realistic and reasonable answers, then the right will come up with uh, irrational ones, you know, that's all. And, and they don't need to be workable. They don't need to work. They just need to catch people's attention and they'll catch the vote yeah. and catch support. Um, yeah. One of the last questions regarding Vox, what's the what's kind of the class makeup of that party? I mean, is it well rooted in working class communities? Does it have middle class support? Does it have business leaders supporting Vox? Is it a mix or or is it really a work? Is it rooted in working class communities? Um, it's a mix of everything. Of course, uh, uh, there is uh, an important part of the business, like uh, the, the high class of Spain uh, with Vox. But there there's another part that it worries me more because obviously uh, the people that they have a lot of money uh, is understandable, <laughs> more or less, that they vote this type of, of uh, far right parties. But uh, which it worries me more is that th we are seeing in some working class uh, neighborhoods and, and communities that they are starting to vote them. Mm. Um, and uh, I think we need to, and, and in our working plan, uh, I highlight this issue that we need to focus, uh, we need to analyze why working class uh, neighborhood communities, uh, young people, they are the most vulnerable ones and, and immigrants as well. Why they are voting these um, these far right parties? Because obviously, uh, if you see what they say, that the the what Vox says in their electoral program, they are against of all the poorest and vulnerable ones and the immigrants, and and they are keeping voting them anyway. So um, yeah, we need to analyze that. We need to to be able to to see why is this happening and what to do uh, to be able to to stop this. Of course, there's some um, neighborhoods or yeah or village that they come from the left and they, historically they are a left neighborhoods and left uh, village that it's, it's not happening but in some of the working class neighborhoods it's starting to happen so we need to be to be uh, aware of that and we need to to be able to to stop that yeah i think i think our analysis on the left of what's happening is is really crucial and that's really important what you said because we know that fascism and the far right is a ruling class project but they need to recruit from the working class to make it work and and you can kind of see that happening we're having issues now in ireland um particularly in dublin but other places as well and it's quite new to us as well i suppose not not racism and not far right views but um you know marches and big turnouts and anti-immigrant marches are happening in places where they never happened before so it's certainly something that seems to be emerging and popping up all across uh, parts of Europe. In, in terms of that, I suppose, the, the, the last question really is, is what's our response? Um, what are the trade unions in Spain doing? What's your response in Comisiones Obreras to, to the rise of the right? And how, how are you working with your members and working and, and you know, to, I suppose, educate them, but also to organise them against the right? Well, um, to be honest, and, and unfortunately, I have to say this, but we are a little bit late already. Uh, but not in my union. I think in general we are late. We are uh, ten years behind the the far right. But in any case, we are now starting to be able to to stop this. In my union, in Comisiones Obreras, at confederal level, we create a working group with uh, experts um, to be able to analyze to to have a study on how is the far right and the fascism in Spain. 
how are they having presence in the institutions and in the social media and how how they uh, work how they uh, try to to cut uh, the the attention of uh, the young people of the most vulnerable ones the the foreign people um and after that to be able to to do a working plan to be able to to tackle all these uh, issues so uh, we create this uh, working group on anti-fascism uh, last year at the end of, of uh, 2022 and we are now in the process to uh, see which people from the different sectors from the different regions they want to participate in this uh, group to be able to have uh, a good um, vision of how is in the different regions of Spain, because as you know, Vox is already in the government in two regions in, in Spain, in Castilla y León and Andalucía. And we need to, to be able, the difference between the different regions and as well the different sectors. And um, I want to say something before before we stop this conversation, because I think it's important and, and we need to uh, have this in mind as well. Um, not focus on political uh, aspect, uh, focusing on trade union uh, aspect, uh, like two or three years ago in, in Spain, uh, Vox has created a reactionary trade union called Solidarity, Solidaridad in Spanish, which obviously uh, we cannot even call a trade union, but mm -hmm. well, they are in some uh, union elections. Um, obviously, they defend the interest of the companies and the employers. At the moment, except for some specific sectors uh, like uh, private security, they are not having too much union representation in the companies, but we need to be very aware that they are there and they can grow up very, very quick. So, um, of course, as a trade unionist, we need to we need to analyze as well this uh, type of, I would say trade union, but I don't want to say trade union because they don't defend the, the, the workers' uh, rights, they defend employers. And the companies, uh, right? So, uh, but we need to be aware that they are there, and we need to to focus on see what we can do to stop this. No, that's really interesting. There was a brief uh, moment when uh, the British National Party set up a union, strangely enough, called Solidarity as well, um, and <laughs> attempted to organise in part in places in Belfast. It didn't succeed, but I know that the the alternative for Deutschland and AfD have people organising in works councils in Germany. We've been working with some German unions who are equally afraid of. You know, the unions is, I suppose, being infected by the far right and the far right uh, using entryism to come into the unions and take them over from the inside as well. So absolutely, it's something we need to need to keep our eye on. Um, Yolanda, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, gracias thanks por hablar conmigo. That's, uh, gracias a vosotros. <laughs> that's the extent of my Spanish. Um, I know, I've no doubt I'll see you again um, and continue working together. And thanks again from me and Maeve and everyone at Trademark for the invitation to work with you this week in Toledo. It's been a really fantastic week and it's really appreciated. No, we, we really appreciate your interventions. Uh, they were amazing. And, and well, we took all your inputs uh, to, to be able to, to translate them to, to our countries. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, I, I'm sure that we will see you very soon and we will keep uh, in touch to be able to work together again. Okay, adios, ciao. Ciao, bye. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.